Can you hear me now? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. I understand today is a prime sale day, so I am honored that you are here in this room, and I'm going to make the assumption that when you're on your phones, you're looking up scripture and not your Amazon account, okay? Okay. So let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we are, we are so grateful to be gathered here. We're gathered here in your name. It is because of all that you have accomplished and have done for us that we are here together. We are a body and a community, and you are our Lord. Father, tonight we get to look at some of the holiest part of the redemption story. So, Father, I ask there would be less of me and more of you, and that you would be glorified. Father, in our conversation, in the teaching, we invite the Holy Spirit into this room, Father, because we're a people who want to be transformed, Lord. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take 15 to 20 minutes to spend time at your tables to go over your pre-work. There are suggested questions uh, that your table leaders have, but they're just suggestions. If you want to talk about what you've read beyond the questions, something that has impressed you, if you have any questions about what you've read in terms of that is not asked by the uh, reflective questions, that's fine. But it'll be a time for you to spend time with your table for the next 15 or 20 minutes, and then we'll gather in about, at about uh, 10 of eight, 10 of seven. Any thoughts or questions on that? Everybody clear? Yes, thank you. To each other <laughs> and have a chance to share what the Holy Spirit showed you this week as you put all the time in to do this pre-work, and we thank you for that. Do you know that we are halfway through this semester? Is it flying for you? So I thought we would do just some basic review just to see that we're all on the same page. And we can just shut out the answers. That's fine. Do we remember the three categories of scripture known as the coat hangers? What do we call them? Do you remember? First one. Foundations. Foundations. Thank you. Second one. And the third one. Instructional, yes. And remember, the instructional amplifies what is laid out in the foundations. Now, in your pre-work this week, there's always assigned passages, correct? Did you read from all three categories this week? All three? Okay. So which one were the uh, foundational? It's on page 40, I believe, of your pre-work. Page 40. The Gospels, the Gospels are foundational, yes. Okay, so they're the four Gospels. What else did you read? Zechariah, and Zechariah is, is what? A prophet, so he's what? Instructional, amplifies the story. Anyone else? Jeremiah? Instructional. Okay, and which one was the history one? And what's the only historical book? in our coat hangers? I know you know. Acts. Great. Okay. Great. We're going to use those categories a lot tonight to see how it works. Hopefully, you know, that scripture might be able to be a little bit more impactful for you as you read. Okay, let's go over our, our acronym, okay? Acronym. C. A. S. K. E. T. The Old Testament. Fabulous, okay? 
How about E? M. P. T. Y. Where are we in this acronym? Messiah. Excellent. Now, you have been the recipients of a lot of information in the New Testament. So let's just bullet point and go over our timeline to see where we are. Okay. The first week we opened our timeline, we were in expectations. That's the first panel, expectations. There's a lot of information there. God chooses to reveal himself and to operate in the history of his people. We see him interface, reveal himself. We're seeing his people and how they work and interface with other nations. That's the first four bullet points. It's there for you to get the context of what's going on in the story. But if you were to say to me, what, what's, what's the takeaway from expectations? It's bullet point number five. Number five are the 10 promises associated with the Old Testament covenants that bridge the story and bring us into the New Testament. And the reason that they, that they do is because they were not fulfilled in the Old Testament. So it, it makes our story seamless, if you will, and it connects it. Now, in the New Testament, we talked about these 10 expectations about three weeks ago. We noticed that we know some have been fulfilled already. Some have definitely not been fulfilled. And there were others where we saw some partial fulfillment or maybe not to the fullest as, we, as was expected. That's because we're in the in-between. So in expectations, what's driving the story would be that fifth bullet point. The background of history is great, but that's okay if you don't remember where the Hasmoneans came from. I, I promise you. Okay? Okay. Now, Messiah. Messiah, the next two panels. And we're in the third week of the Messiah. Two weeks ago, Neil introduced us and opened this up for us, okay? So we see in the Messiah, he covered four bullet points. The first one, what the Gospels are telling us, who this person is. This person born is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why does that matter? Because they refer to two unconditional Old Testament covenants. As son of Abraham, he is the anticipated seed that will bless all the nations. It's, this, it's Jesus. This is what the gospel writers are telling us, okay? As son of David, we now know who the heir who will be on the throne forever is. It's Jesus. In a sense, this first week and those four bullet points are, for our sake, authenticating the Messiah, okay? So the next two bullet parts, points, we're, we're heading into more history. Number four. Number four, we talked about John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. And what's he telling us? Prepare the way for the Lord. The kingdom of God is upon us, right? And then we looked at Jesus' baptism. And what did we see there? The Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him for his ministry. And we heard the Father say, this is my son, listen to him. And then the Spirit brings him out into the wilderness. The devil tempts him and he triumphs. So here he is, ready now for a public ministry. Last week, Bob, Bob covered the main part of that public ministry. And what did we see there? Something that was new for me. I never realized how prevalent the kingdom of God was in the Gospels and in Jesus' teaching. It was a real eye-opener. So Bob spent the whole week on that, and it needed to be. Because why? Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, and he shows us something that's otherworldly how you live through the Sermon on the Mount. Who lives like that? So 
Then he will demonstrate its power through the signs and the wonders. I never thought of the miracles as doing that. And then he announces it in the parables. When something this radical comes into the scene, two reactions, and that they're the next two bullet points. We're on uh, panel number three. I'm now on the third bu bullet point. The first reaction, opposition. Who, who do you think you are forgiving sin? Who, who are you? You're not the Messiah. They don't want this change, opposition. And then the fourth bullet point is just what the gospel writers want all of us to say, exactly what Peter said, uh, you are the Messiah. So some people are getting it. So this sets us up for tonight, which is the third and final part of Messiah. And we will cover four key points. The Last Supper, crucifixion, resurrection, and we're going to touch on mission. Everybody up to speed now? Great. Wonderful. It's a lot, and you've been doing great. Thank you. Our main idea tonight is that obedience is essential for discipleship. Obedience? Have you heard that before? Okay. Last year, right about this time, I taught that all disciples need to trust God. And we talked about this because we were looking at the idolatry of the Old Testament. For disciples, God is enough. But tonight we'll see that obedience is the outworking of that trust. In John 13, while Jesus and his disciples are celebrating Passover, Jesus does something unusual. Now, I do need to ask you something. There is going to be a lot of scripture reading tonight. Please do not be shy. And can we pass that mic around? And I don't care how many times you want to read, but you don't want to hear me the whole night. So I'm going to ask if you will partake by reading in scripture, okay? So we're going to start with John 13, 4 and 5. Carrie, would you like to start? Thank you. <laughs> he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and I need it. <laughs> okay, okay. I must have hiccuped. Okay. I don't have that part of the Bible memorized. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's the next one. It's the next one, you know, right? Yes. Exactly. I've got that next verse. No. Um, uh, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around him. Thank you. Gary Burge wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John. Ancient sources show that foot washing was a degrading task. Now, when it happened within the relationship of husband and wife, child and parent, pupil for teacher, it wasn't always an act of extreme devotion. But since it was an act with social implications, in no way do we ever find the higher status washing the feet of those beneath them. When Jesus lays aside his outer garment, he's adopting the posture of a slave. So it continues. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because it is true. And since I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. You know these things. Now do them. That is the path of blessing. Thank you. Sometimes our Lord tells us clearly and explicitly what his will is for his disciples. 
this is one of those times. And it is consistent with the teaching throughout his public ministry. Would somebody read Mark 10 for us on this side? Oh, thank you. Thank you. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that in this world kings are tyrants and officials lord it over the people beneath them. But among you it should be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Sarah. Both John and Mark are foundational books. They tell us how it is. James is an instructional book, so he's going to amplify for us this teaching as he speaks to a group of early Christian believers. And remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen. If you don't obey, you are only fooling yourself. For if you just listen and don't obey, it is like looking at your face in a mirror, but doing nothing to improve your appearance. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you keep looking steadily into God's perfect law, the law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Thank you. The night before Jesus died, he demonstrated another characteristic of discipleship, servanthood. See, servanthood flows out of our obedience, and our obedience flows out of our trust of him. He taught this throughout his public ministry. Last week, we read and we reflected on the Sermon on the Mount. And here, the night before he died, he taught on servanthood once again. I'm thinking at this point in his earthly ministry, he's highlighting the essentials because he knows he's going to be leaving soon. And I want to point out something to you about John's gospel since we're looking at it. In John's gospel, chapters 1 through 12, Jesus performs many signs and many miracles throughout his public ministry. As we said, he's demonstrating the kingdom. But by the end of chapter 12, most of the Jews have rejected him. We talked about that rejection also. So in chapter 13, where we we begin here, he shifts from the public ministry to a private ministry. He turns his attention to his inner circle. And one of the things he has reinforced by example is servanthood. By the way, all of the apostles were in that room when he was washing their feet. So who was there? Judas. Let that sink in. I thought about asking a discussion question on this, but I truly think this requires personal reflection and time with the Lord. So we'll move on, and we're going to talk about the new covenant. Can anybody tell me what what the Passover is? What does it memorialize? Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Beth. The night that they left, the night that the lamb's blood was over the door so that they could be spared. Anything else? That's exactly what they were memorializing. So the Passover recalls the great redemption story for Israel 
That's the great redemption story of the Old Covenant. They'll be freed from slavery under the Egyptians who were hard masters. But even Moses knew someone greater was coming. You like to read that? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to that prophet. Someone greater is coming because we need someone greater to redeem us from a more powerful master than even Egypt proved to be. Humanity needs to be redeemed from the powerful master of sin. And I like how Dr. Palmer, in our reading this week, said it. At the climax of this sacred meal, Jesus reinterprets the central symbols of the Passover around himself. Palmer makes this connection, first with the broken bread. The giving of Jesus' body is a specific reference to his death. He would be the Passover lamb slaughtered for them. And also for us, right? For anybody who accepts the gift of salvation. John the Baptist said it very well. saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, there is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you. Takes away the sin of the world. Not covers our sin, and it's still there, but simply hidden. Not a temporary fix that requires further payment or redemption, but takes away our sin. That's what the broken body of Christ did for us. So let's move on to the cup. Jesus continued. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Thank you. Unlike the Old Testament, when the covenant was made with the blood of an animal, Jesus will inaugurate the new covenant through his own shed blood. Now notice I'm using the words covenant and testament interchangeably. Testament is simply the Latin word for covenant. So they could be used that way, okay? Now, just as the Jews remembered the redemption when celebrating the Passover, we too celebrate our redemption when we share in what? Communion, the Lord's Supper, and the Eucharist. All the same. Does anybody know what Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. Eucharist is Greek for Thanksgiving. And where does that come from? And he took bread, and when he had given, thanks. Thanks. Now, Paul wrote these instructions to the Corinthian church. Again, right, amplifying what Jesus did in the, in the Gospels. What do we see here in the early celebration? Who would like to? Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. 
Scholars date the letter to the Corinthians somewhere around 55 AD, 2,000 years ago. We, the contemporary church, are at the same point in the redemption story as that church was. We live between the two comings of Christ. What are we doing when we celebrate this ordinance? Just like the Corinthians, we are remembering the Lord's death, the already, and anticipating his return, the not yet. We do that as a body. Now, in our homework this week, we were asked question one on page 42, and you may have discussed it in your group tonight. I was wondering if we could share as a group, if anybody would be willing, is there something meaningful to you about the practice of taking communion, and did the homework in any way enhance your thinking of this practice? Would anyone like to share? Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. Well said. Anyone else? Thank you. Uh, the, <clears throat> the word that kept being brought up at our table was just extreme humbleness, uh, gratitude, uh, reverence. Um, you know, it's it's definitely something from within. It's personal for everyone, but just knowing that you know Jesus gave everything for us. Mm. Um, no matter how many times you read the story or think about it, um, it just always you know just that extreme gratitude that comes over. It's like wow, you mm. know. No matter why you did this for us, you you know you're as long as we trust in you uh, and, and follow you. You know, our sins have been forgiven. It's powerful. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Anyone else? part about when they were making the bowls and stuff like that, and then I was thinking about that at the same time, too, and I thought, just thought to myself, so we could have made a pot of gold and everything, but then we made it out of sand. I, I just thought about that. It's just that reflection of him knowing mm. what his plan was for us was laid in our own hands. Thank you so much. So we have reflection, gratitude, humility, awesome. Anything else? Yes. Thank you, Lisa. Yes. Thank you. Great point. Thank you very much. Confession before partaking of the meal. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Yes. 
Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you for sharing these personal things. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Holy Spirit moving in? Yes. That's on it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You really see yourself in the story. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Yes, Beth. Mm. Mm. Infinite continuum, yes. 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 Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Beth brought up a most beautiful psalm, Psalm 103, and I want to thank you for that. If you're struggling a little bit with really seeing what the Lord has done, and this is the Old, Old Testament, read Psalm 103. It's a remarkable thing in, in that covenant, what David saw to understand what God was going to do. And she's right. The East and the West never meet. God forgets our sins. So it's a wonderful, wonderful, uplifting psalm. And the first five verses will talk about remarkable gifts that God gives us. Full forgiveness, full healing, full redemption. He crowns us with his love and compassion. And for many of us in this room, listen to this. He'll satisfy our desires with right things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. That's the first five verses. It's a remarkable psalm. Thank you for bringing that up, Beth. Anyone else? Okay, so we're still, thank you. Thank you for sharing. That was very kind and very gracious of you and very unselfish. Thank you. Well, we're still at the Lord's Supper, and we're not going to leave until we talk about the new covenant. That night, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I know we use these words, new covenant, this and that. So let's take, a take 10 minutes at your table. What or how do you understand the new covenant? And how do you really see it as being different from the old? 
Again, think of it this way. These questions are designed that what if a new believer comes to you or somebody who may have heard some things or been to church as a child, and they're coming to you and they're saying, could you explain this to me? So it's not a matter, honestly, don't feel like it's a matter of any kind of mental jockeying or anything like that. It's a matter of sharing our faith. So how would you share to somebody, this is a new covenant and how it's different from the old? So we'll take about 10 minutes. I'll be back about 7.30. Okay. Any things at your table that was like, oh, this is really, never thought about this before? Anything helpful? Okay, well then let's go in and dive into ourselves, okay? This week... We read and reflected upon Jeremiah 31. Would anybody like to read this wonderful passage for us? Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Thank you, Jeff. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. In Jewish thought, the heart was more than emotion or affections. It also referred to the will. The heart is where our thinking, choosing, and where we decide. Christopher Wright wrote a commentary on Jeremiah, and he makes this point about this passage. We should not imagine that up till now, Israel had only been required to give mechanical obedience to an external code of law carved in stone, whereas suddenly God announces that they need to have a change of attitude as well. On the contrary, the idea that God's law should be on the heart was already emphasized by Deuteronomy. Foundational, Old Testament, fifth book, right? In Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So involving the heart in obeying God was not new. What seems to be new here in Jeremiah is that God not only asks for obedience from the heart, but promises that he himself will implant it there. It seems that a genuine internalizing of the law is envisioned. It is no longer merely that Israel should wholeheartedly obey the law, but that they should live by an inner impulse coming from within, from God's law written on their hearts. In other words, their whole inclination or will and all of their actions would be to live according to God's action and living according to his standards and his ways. A complete internal change. The prophet Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah. They lived about 600 years before Christ. Look at what he has to say about the heart. Anybody? Thank you. 
and I'll give you a new heart with new and right desires, and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony heart of sin and give you a new obedient heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. Thank you, Beth. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Old Testament. But after the new covenant is established, that's where we are, right? Paul tells us how this prophecy has been fulfilled. Would somebody please read from Romans? Yes, I can. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the Jewish ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. In true circumcision, is not a cutting of the body, but a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. Thank you, Carl. How many of you were familiar with the Ezekiel passage? Do you realize that Paul is telling us it's been fulfilled here? Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, writes about this passage. Circumcision of the heart, he says, is no new requirement. Moses himself called the people of Israel to from Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. God's true people have always been marked by faith-filled commitment to God and not merely external rights. Paul goes beyond the Old Testament by insisting that the heart circumcision is accomplished in and by the Spirit, by God himself. God is doing the work in us. Now take a look how he expounds on this in Philippians. Look at these words. This is where we are in the story. This, is, this has happened. Would somebody please read Philippians? Yes. Dearest friends, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away with you, you must be even more careful to put into action God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. Thank you. God is working in us now to give us the desire to obey him. We live under the new covenant. We have the power of God through his Holy Spirit living and working in us to be obedient, the outward sign of discipleship now coming from an inner impulse placed there by God himself. Because remember, obedience is essential for discipleship. Does anybody recognize um, the, the Romans verse from maybe the past week of... Okay. <laughs> it's always good when it works out like that. Okay. <laughs> We're going to move on now to the crucifixion. The religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus, they were on to something. You see, this itinerant rabbi was gaining followers. And if they could silence him, the movement would die out. The movement would be thwarted. No momentum. How long do you think the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount would have survived if they were taught by a fraud? Here's the thing, though. The killing of Jesus had to be strategic. And there's a little hint in Acts as to what I mean. In Acts 7... Stephen is a deacon. He's accused of speaking against the temple. He defends himself by talking about Israel's long history of resisting God. 
he infuriates the Jewish leaders, and he is stoned. Now, you can read this account, as I said, in Acts 7. And if you look at it, nowhere in, in that account does Rome care. They're not involved. You have a squabble within your religious life? I don't care. And they were able to kill Stephen without any kind of problem. Well, today as a result of that stoning, you know what Stephen is known as? The first martyr of the church. Exactly. And we can still read his testimony in Scripture. So in a way, Stephen still speaks to us and has some influence. When Jesus cleansed the temple, they could have stoned him right there. But they didn't. See, what if their actions turned Jesus into a martyr? No. He had to be seen as a criminal. He had to be seen as a failure. And thereby, he needed to be silenced. He was a problem. Crucifixion is capital punishment, and it was reserved for the criminals against the state. But it also served as a means to show Jesus not only as a criminal, but as a lawbreaker and a covenant breaker. One who is cursed. And where do I get that? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21.23 states that anyone hanging on a tree is cursed of God. You see, crucifixion would have destroyed Jesus' testimony. Or so they thought. You see, something else is going on in the bigger story of redemption. So let's turn our attention to God and work through this. We actually have a point here we're going to need to resolve. So let me set it up for you. We know that God is creator. He has the power to speak life into existence. When Jesus walked on the earth as God incarnate, he too demonstrated this power. He simply called Lazarus from a tomb and Lazarus was resurrected. That's a powerful word. In our story, we see God is the only offended party in the story, and the rest of us are the offenders. You see, our problem is an unyielding will, and we don't always accept his sovereignty. God is powerful. Our story tells us that he clearly loves us. And if God is the only offended party, then why doesn't Jesus simply forgive us? We say there's power in forgiveness, don't we? But according to Isaiah 53.10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So here's the next question I'd like you to work out. How do you understand the necessity of the cross? And why didn't God just simply forgive us? It's a fair question that people who don't really understand the Bible or have been through years of preaching, they're going to ask. You say he's powerful. You say he loves us. You say he's the offended one. Why all this? Ten minutes. I'll be back around ten. Of, I can't wait to hear what you say. Yes. The point of the academy is to go out there and make disciples. You're going to get these questions. Are we ready to go out into the world and explain all this? I know. So let's talk a little bit about this. The answer to the question is actually rooted in God's character. He acts in perfect justice always. Sin requires a penalty. And as we know, it's steep. That penalty is death. Now, from my limited viewpoint, it seems to me that God has a dilemma. He created us to be in relationship with him. 
when he addresses the people at Sinai, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that desire of God has not changed. It never changes in this story. Yet all sinners, we have the same fate, death. So if God is life, not death, how can we dwell with him forever in this state? Well, God knew before he created us how he was going to solve the dilemma. For him, it wasn't one. His son would take on our penalty so that we could live in relationship with him. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us this. Yes, He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began. But now, in these final days, he was sent to the earth for all to see. And he did this for you. Thank you. The cross resolves the great dilemma without any compromise on God's part. Because this is where perfect justice intersects perfect love. He doesn't give up any part of being a God of full justice. The cross took care of that. It was the penalty due sin. But who was on the cross showed the world that God still loves them. That's where it's resolved. But this leads to another discussion question. I promise it's the last one tonight, okay? Peter tells us God chose him for the purpose long before the world began. So here's my question. Do you think the Father ordered the Son to go to the cross? Promise that's the last one. And then explain your answer. I'll come back a little after eight. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's great to hear the chatter. So let's, let's unpack this, okay? Jesus continued his teaching that night at the Last Supper. In John 13, here's what he says. It's a mouthful. It's taken me a long time to break this down, and we're going to break this down tonight. The time has come for me, the Son of Man, to enter into my glory. And God will receive glory because of all that happens to me. And God will bring me into my glory very soon. The word glory literally means heavy or weighty. It's the brightness, splendor, and radiance of God's presence. It is God's visible revelation of himself. In the New Testament, Jesus demonstrated the personality, presence, and character of God. He made the glory of God forever visible. Now, here's where our doctrine actually helps us. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, which means he is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential of the same essence, the same as the Father. Equals do not hold authority over each other. 50-50 ownership, if we were in a business like that, we would have to sign all the documents together. The minute that shifts to the 51-49, the game changes. But this doesn't happen within the Trinity. They remain equal throughout eternity. So when Jesus prayed in Luke 22:42, not my will, but yours be done, he submitted voluntarily to go to the cross to solve our problem 
And in doing so, he glorified his father. God's visible revelation of himself. The perfect submission and obedience that should have been given to him in the garden by the creature is now given to him at the cross by his equal. Remember, the Gospels are foundational, and the epistles are instructional. So how do we amplify this beautiful, beautiful concept? Philippians 2.5. Who would like to read that wonderful passage? Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Thank you. Remember, Jesus said, and God will receive glory because of all that happens to me. And this is how Jesus glorified the Father, obedience in submission. An essential trait for whom? Disciples. But Jesus continues at the, at the supper. This is John 13, 32. Remember, I just read it, and God will bring me into my glory very soon. How does he do this? Would somebody read Romans 1, 4? Jesus Christ, our Lord, was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised him from the dead by means of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. The Father glorifies the Son through the resurrection. The resurrection validates the testimony of Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament witnesses, and our own testimony today. Paul will amplify this even further when he wrote this to the Corinthian church. It's not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still under condemnation for your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ only for this life, we are the most miserable people in the world. Thank you. Your faith is useless, the most miserable of people. Without the resurrection, we have nothing to share. Without the resurrection, we have nothing to offer the world. Without the resurrection, we have no testimony. There's no reason to be a disciple of a failed itinerant Jewish rabbi, is there? However, what did Jesus say that night? And God will bring me into my glory very soon. And he did it through the resurrection. Glory is God's visible revelation of himself. This is who I am. That's what he's saying. Jesus made the glory of God forever visible. We can know God through Jesus. And recall what Jesus modeled just in our lesson tonight. Foot washing deemed a degrading task, and he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. That's what the Savior modeled. This is who I am. This is how you know God. And remember what Romans tells us? We are going to be like the sun, Romans 8, 29. Everything's happening, right, for God's purpose. All who love God, all that happens to us for God's purpose, and the purpose is for us to be like him. This could be daunting, except for the encouragement that the scripture has given us. 
God himself is working in us to produce this. That's, that's what we need to show the world, the dying, hurting world. Like Jesus, we glorify God when we're obedient. It's a response of love. I heard that from this room tonight. Gratitude. I heard this in this room tonight. And the recognition of our debt to him for all that he has secured for us. Remember, our redemption required, the payment that was required was steep. Jesus went to the cross for us. Obedience is essential for all disciples. Which leads us to the last point on the Messiah timeline. The Great Commission. Mission. Would somebody please read Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Make, Thank you. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching you disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Thank you. Just so you know, this is one of the passages that inspired the academy. This is one of the foundational passages. So we can end tonight with our pre-work, and this is on page 43, number three. Two of the questions, and here's what I would like to ask you. You're not boasting when you tell us what you're doing in the kingdom. You're glorifying God. Because if we, we clearly seen tonight, God is doing the work to produce all of this, okay? So my question is, is do you want to share something? Perhaps we can go beyond this. Have you ever led anyone to Christ? Shared the gospel? Maybe your own story. But we're here to do the working part of the academy. So does the resurrection empower you to live out the Great Commission? But then what steps did you think about this week or reprioritize or reorient your life towards obeying the call to make disciples? And if it didn't happen this week, but you have a great story to share, we'll all benefit by it. I just ask that you wait for the microphone. Does anybody want to share? This is what we're all working towards. I wanted to share what three men did for me. About 32 years ago, I had pretty much uh, not been to church for 13 years. I grew up in a home where the Lord was loved. We went to church regularly. But when I turned 19 years old, for some reason, I just sat there at church one Sunday and said, I have no idea why I'm here. And I just floated away. And before you know it, 13 years had passed by, and I had not been to church, maybe for a wedding or a funeral, but I didn't even bother going at Christmas and Easter because I wasn't a hypocrite. My husband and I did get married in the church because that's what you do. But the first 10 years of our marriage, we did not go to church. In 1987, some of you may not remember this, but there was a large financial crash in the stock market. And for the next year, it was hard being a stockbroker. You could hear your hair grow. Nobody was doing anything. And you make money when you're a broker when people do things. It was slow. I watched people panic. I watched people be anxious. I watched people cheat other people. It was pretty bad. Yes. Three men looked different. They had a confidence about them. They weren't shaken. They were calm. I wanted to each one separately. And I asked them, well, I, I don't understand. What, what do you have? What's so different? Two of them told me that they had been walking with the Lord for many, many years. And they were following 
his lifestyle and how they were to live. So circumstances in the world didn't jar them. Nothing had changed as far as they were concerned. One other young man was new in the Lord, and he told me what his life was like before Christ and after. No long theological conversations, a couple minutes with each man. Couple minutes. Came home that day and said to my husband, 32 years ago, can we go back to church? And he goes, absolutely. They all went to the same church, and for the first time in a long time, we heard the word of God. They were ready to give me the reason for their hope. Let me just tell you, it was simple. There was nothing about it that they were not trying to impress me at all. They were just telling me their story. And here's the key. God wasn't looking for me. I wasn't looking for God when God was looking for me. He had it already in set. So that's how it works. Anybody else have a story like that? Maybe you were one of the people that were ready to share the story. You're not boasting. Okay. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. That's always good to hear, the kingdom growing. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's why we're here. Is it working? Yes. There we go. Um, so I remember lining up for my freshman dorm to walk in when I, was a fr when I got to Duke. Okay? I'm in that line. There's 150 kids or so in the line all waiting to check in day one. We were looking down that line thinking, I'll be friends with that one, not that one. I'll be friends with that person, not that person. Just going down the line. I learned later all the ones that I picked out that I didn't like, just by looking at them, were the Christians in, in my dorm. Okay? Fast forward to February. It's about Valentine's Day. First year at Duke. I get sick, end up in the hospital for a week. The people that I was hanging out with, partying with, running around with, they came once to the hospital, said, hey, this is, this is lame, we're out. Come see us when you're out. I'm in the hospital for a few more days. Things aren't going well. I'm tired of being there. And in walk all the people that I picked out in that line that I did not want to be with. Mm. And I, I, just, I knew it right then. I was like, you got to be kidding, God. That's what went through my head. you got to be kidding. And I just could feel like that, that inaudible voice saying, checkmate. Because, right? Because he got me, right? And um, those are the people I started hanging out with when I got out of the hospital. Started going to InterVarsity, started going to a Campus Crusade, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's how that played out. Thank you, Dustin. But he put me in the hospital and had the, the people I didn't like corner me in my hospital bed. He knows what we need. Thank you, Dustin. But do you see how simple the stories appear to be? How God uses everything? Because we're walking around with the Holy Spirit in us, right? Working in the power, right? And God has made it clear through the whole story. He wants this kingdom to grow. That's why we're still here. Anybody else? Yes. Last year when I was in seventh grade, um, that was around the time when I had then become a Christian. And not too long after, I started a, a Bible study at my school. And I thought, that not many people would attend. And there were at max five people that later ended up attending every day, um, which I was glad with five, five people doesn't seem like a lot, but it was for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was glad to be able to share the word with them and uh, 
I mean, to even this day, uh, a lot of people in my class recognize that uh, I accept Jesus and I follow the Lord, and I was surprised of about all that. Thank you. You were obedient. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, before we close in prayer, is the Holy Spirit pushing on anybody to share? I want to thank you. Thank you for all who did share. Thank you for the sharing at the table. Thank you for the amount of reading that you did. So let's get closed in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that your eyes roam the earth and you find us. You know exactly what we need, whether you put us into that Christian family or whether you have us go out into that world for a while, whether we don't find you till later in life or, or, or actually you find us or whether we're just off sorts for a while. You're such a, such a good God and you're such a faithful God. This story shows us how much you want us to be your people. You've left us here because you trust us. You trust us with this story. You trust us with your power inside of us to be a light, to reflect you. It's awesome, but somehow or other, you still believe in us. And you've given, we believe in you, but you believe in us. So, Father, help us to think of all the resources you've given us, our story, opportunities, our neighborhoods. Even if we begin with a prayer list, three people, five people, and we pray and we pray, and some of us might be praying for decades. But Father, you're worth it. So help us to transform. Help us to transform into the image of your son. Help us to be just, just like him. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. And I pray that tonight, that as everyone leaves, that you will be with them, that they will have your protection, and I pray that you bring them back safely the next time they're on campus. Thank you, Father, for letting us meet at the, as a body to pray together, to, to study your word, and to share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.